Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we reflect on the death of Queen Elizabeth II. This is usually a political podcast where we unpick the policy and posturing of the week, but yesterday it all changed. One moment we were watching the brand new Prime Minister Liz Truss announcing a hugely significant emergency bailout to try and prevent mass fuel poverty over the winter. And just hours later, she was making a speech outside number 10 about the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And I don't know about you all, but a lot of the messages I've been receiving and conversations I've been having with friends and family and colleagues and contacts even, people have been describing having a very strange feeling as well as sadness. And I do think the passing of an era like this makes us feel profoundly strange. And at a time of national mourning, it is inevitable that we think of our own loss of our own loved ones. We can relate deeply with that Mm. rush of the family to the bedside. I know I I certainly thought that when I was watching some of the rolling coverage. But for me, it was the quote used on the Telegraph front page this morning, grief is the price we pay for love, which the Queen said when her husband, Prince Philip, died, that is most moving. And surely everyone who has been through a bereavement can relate to that. And Andrew, you spoke very movingly on your LBC show just last night, just before the news broke yesterday evening, I think, of the Queen's personality and how such a big part of her reign was how she ran counter to our sort of modern culture of individualism to suppress her beliefs and who she really is. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that reflection, but also a bit about who she really was. Like all journalists who come on and talk about who the Queen really was, I don't know, because I didn't spend time with her one-to-one or anything like that. I followed her a lot for three big documentaries I made. I wrote a book about her and talked to many friends, but I don't want to pretend to be one of those sort of shadowy palace insiders because (laughs) I ain't. What has struck me, however, watching her is that we all grow up in this culture where we are told the greatest good is to be yourself as vividly and extremely in the sense as we can. It's a cult of individualism and the best life is to decide who you are inside and express it as fulsomely and eloquently as you can. And that is a relatively new thing. 
that comes about in Western societies after Romanticism and the various feminist and socialist revolutions that follow that, this individualism. Historically, you were what you did. If you were a shoemaker, that's who you were. If you were a priest or a grandmother, or if you were a farm worker, that actually expressed the essence of your personality. And it's not until we get to the romantic poets that people are beginning to break out of that way of thinking about themselves in the world. Very like, in, a, in, a, in many ways, the traditional Indian Hindu caste system. You are what you're born into. And if you look around the world, there are very few people who still think in the old way. There may be some religious groups around the world, but very few people, particularly in the Western world, think that way. And I think the Queen was almost unique in that from a very early age with a kind of very sober girlish dedication she dedicated herself to the role she was absolutely convinced that god had given her the role there's no metaphor there's no joke about that for her that was how it was and the kind of person that she was in public was not like the person she was everyone says in private she was much funnier much more quite hard-edged in, in, in private, very bright, really understood the details, the weeds of politics. She got every week this very detailed and sometimes quite gossipy, salty account of what had really been going on behind the scenes in Parliament from one of the whips. And she always read it. She knew what it was about. But in public, she was absolutely sub the sobriety, the mask of duty, relatively rarely smiling at a official occasions, going through the endless, utterly exhausting, wearisome, bone-chilling round of handshakes and processions and standing around that she had to do. I think she subdued herself to the role. As far as she was concerned, she wasn't important. The role she was performing was. And I think that's almost unique and something we can all think about, if I put it that way gently. You mentioned the emotional feeling, and I should, as it were, <coughs> confess that as nobody's idea of an ardent monarchist, I found myself when I was on LBC announcing the news yesterday that the Queen had died. I knew I was going to crack up, and I did. I choked up when I had to say to the world, we have to interrupt this programme to say to tell you that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. And I thought to myself, why am I so emotional? Why can I not stop my, my, my voice cracking and some tears coming to my eyes? And Anush had it exactly right. It was because... I was thinking of my own father's death two years ago. And that's interesting, I think, because in a way, it's a hackneyed, cliched phrase, but she was a kind of mother of the nation. And I think something that is worth talking about today is what it's been like for Britain to have a female head of state. Simon Sharma wrote a very interesting piece for the, New, for the Financial Times, in which he was saying so many other countries around the world in the 20th century and early 21st century, when they want to show how big they are, how strong they are, how much they matter, they put on huge military parades of missiles and tanks, and they bark at each other, and they, they wave flags, and they march up and down. And we have tea parties and Paddington. And that is a better way of being. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I know for me, whenever I read about the Queen or see the kind of things that you've just illustrated there, I always think of my own grandmother because she grew up with the Queen and it's a topic of conversation every time I go and visit her. Every time we spend Christmas together, we always watch the Queen's speech. So for me, she's more associated with my grandma, perhaps the grandmother of the nation. And Megan, I want to bring you in on this because yeah. you are our international editor and you can give us a sense of how the world has reacted to this news, but also how they see the Queen, what role she plays in their lives. So I think at the moment, probably what we're seeing around the world is distinguishable from what we're seeing in the UK. Front pages are covered with the wonderful portraits 
glowing tributes. We're seeing flowers and tributes at embassies around the world, from Tokyo to Washington. So that's really incredible. And I think worldwide, everyone's respecting and recognizing the historical moment. But that said, obviously, everyone feels differently about the Queen than the British do. So while there's a lot of admiration and I think a lot of affection for her, there isn't the same kind of deference. So I think the conversation around the world will move on quite a lot more quickly than it will in the UK. The period of mourning will be much shorter, if you would even call that outside. And especially for the 14 countries that are constitutional monarchies and for which the Queen was head of state and now Charles is the head of state. I think the conversation will move on even faster now. Yes, it really struck me. I was watching some of the coverage last night and and he said the Norwegian news had stopped and was just, had stopped normal broadcasting and was was reporting on this story, which I thought was really interesting because can you imagine here us stopping our normal broadcasting for the death of any other head of state around the world? Probably not. And actually there is that phrase that you often hear in, in American films and stuff, who are you, the Queen of England or richer than the Queen of England? And she is very much sort of part of parlance globally, not just in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a Canadian. So she's been my head of state for my entire life. She's on all our banknotes. She's on all the coins. So all of those questions as practical questions of will they put Charles on the banknotes? Those will all be conversations that will be happening in other countries around the world as well. So yeah, she's just quite a pivotal figure. If I could ask Megan whether she thinks that there's clearly been a withdrawal from the idea of constitutional monarchy among many Commonwealth countries, particularly in the Caribbean, parts of Africa. There's been a big Australian Republican movement. I wonder whether Megan thinks that this very sad event will actually hasten the withdrawal of the British monarchy as a kind of global institution. I suspect it will. Canada, growing up, I can't really remember a Republican movement having any kind of strength. But in in recent years, we've really seen, I think that's gained ground a lot. What was a recent poll said, I think only 34% of Canadians polled wanted to remain a constitutional monarchy under King Charles. So I think you'll hear louder calls and a lot of soul searching who we are now that will happen much more quickly in, in Commonwealth countries. And Rachel, we'll, we will be seeing some of that soul searching here as well. But first of all, I'd love to know what happens next practically. Do we know anything about the banknotes or the stamps or even the funeral? We know a little bit, although much of it is speculation. I think we're, we're heading towards 10 days of national mourning here in the UK. The civil service is in a state that's similar to PERDA before elections where they're still working and they're still operating. But no big statements, nothing controversial. And I think there has been some concern that that now is not the time to shut the government down for 10 days when we've just had two months of a caretaker government, a caretaker prime minister, while we had the Conservative leadership race. uh, And we're heading into an autumn of economic and energy crisis, we can't afford to suspend the works of the government. So I think that pressure is going to come up against the very justifiable desire to show respect and give this moment the kind of dignity and consideration that it clearly deserves. It is, to be frank, not ideal timing. So I think there's going to be a balance between 
those two things. We know that her, her, her coffin is going to come down from Balmoral on the royal train and there will be, I'm sure, lots of people going out to, to see that and it will be displayed in Westminster for three days for people to go and pay their respects. And I can imagine vast crowds there, probably to pick up on what Megan was saying, coming from all over the world as well. As for how much things are changing, it's quite interesting. There are some things that have changed immediately. We have a king in this country, and that is a very strange thing to say. Mm. And it's particularly strange, I think, because we all knew it was going to happen. And she was 96, nobody lives forever. It's been clear for the last 70 years that at some point she is going to pass away and there will be a king. And yet it feels very strange to say a lot of the tributes coming in finish with God save the king. We have King Charles III. This is all just very strange. The Bar Association, barristers put out a statement pretty much immediately to say that uh, all individuals who had silk Queen's Council, that honour given to top barristers, they are now King's Council. That has changed immediately. Other things will take longer. I imagine that the banknotes and the coins and the stamps will be phased in gradually. But I think it is going to be very strange the first time you get handed a £5 note and it's got King Charles's face on it. Facing the other way uh, uh, as well, which is tradition, that the monarchs alternate which, which way they face. So it's like overnight, a lot of the backdrop to our day-to-day lives that we don't really think about, but that make Britain feel like home will change. And I imagine that it will feel a bit like almost stepping into a parallel universe, sort of Black Mirror style, where everything ostensibly is the same, but just little details have changed. And I find that very unsettling, even though we all knew it was going to happen. Yes. Uh, if I, could, I think that's absolutely right. We have no idea quite how weird it's going to feel. We will never, ever sing at football matches or wherever, God save the Queen. We will never turn on the television at Christmas for the Queen's mess. I was wondering, you know, I've written a book called Elizabethans, and we have been, in a sense, Elizabethans. That was something that Churchill, her first prime minister, said. We are now in a new Elizabethan age. And I was wondering what we are now. And apparently the official answer is we are Carolines, which I quite like. We're sweet Carolines. I didn't know that. I was going to ask you that, what it's called when you're in the Charles era. We're Carolines. Right. A lot of people thought he wouldn't keep Charles because there have been, if I may put it gently, some unfortunate historical precedents there. But he is. He's not going to be another King Edward or another King George, which a lot of people thought was going to happen. So there we are. Yes, everything is, I'm absolutely right, Rachel, everything is going to feel so different. That really struck me, that phrasing in your piece that you wrote actually for the Platinum Jubilee, Andrew, where you said about the second Elizabethan era coming to an end. It was the first time I suddenly felt that I am living in history. I always had one of those wooden rulers with all of the kings and queens on it, but I... For some reason, I never thought that there would have to be another notch on that ruler, if you see what I mean. And suddenly you're part of an era that will be in textbooks as the second Elizabethan era. It's quite odd. In many ways, it's a very strange way of identifying historical periods. Mm. Who happens to be a monarch at the time as compared with centuries or whatever it might be. But in a way, it's also quite a human thing because it is a human lifespan from that very hierarchical, almost overwhelmingly white, imperialist, much more military, much more ordered, buttoned up, less emotive society that the Queen was born into to where we are now, where... 
I think the first time I really noticed it was at the after the death and then the funeral of Diana, because suddenly the streets of London were covered with the. I remember the Duke of Edinburgh said, "There's a very sinister sound sometimes in the middle of the night, and it's the wind on the cellophane wrapping around the." tens or hundreds of thousands of flowers in front of Buckingham Palace and up and down St James's. And suddenly the whole country was out on the streets and there was people were wailing and hugging each other and in tears in public. And somehow it felt kind of Mediterranean compared to the old British way of doing things. And the fact that she has, as it were, taken us or been there all the way through that period from one, is a human lifetime. And I thought in some senses, therefore, the word Elizabethan is absolutely perfect. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And I did want to pick up on something Rachel pointed out, which was very important about the stability. Obviously, it's another cliche, but people talk about the Queen as being this figure that unites the nation and has been a constant throughout most of our lifetimes. This is a difficult period for the UK. And Andrew, you said yesterday that we were very lucky to have a monarch like the Queen who was prepared to completely suppress her opinions. But you said her son Charles is another matter. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that, because he's 
He's been so long in public life. He's been waiting to succeed the throne for decades. So we know a lot about him. Perhaps it's inevitable. We know his passionately held stances from the campaigns that he's pushed over the years. How can he shed all of that when he succeeds the throne? It's a really good question. It would be unreasonable to expect an intelligent, interested person to get into their 70s without saying anything because they're waiting for a different job. I spoke to Sir Nicholas Soames, former Tory MP, former Defence Minister, and of course the grandson of Winston Churchill, uh, her first Prime Minister. And he said two things which really resonated with me. First of all, just going back to our conversation about the length, the span that she, she connects to, was that he told a story which hadn't been told before, which was that when his grandfather, when Churchill finally ceased being Prime Minister, the Queen attended a very private dinner in his honour at Downing Street. And there weren't going to be any toasts. But the Queen suddenly stood up and toasted him as her greatest Prime Minister or great Prime Minister. And he then got in his full fig of kind of court dress and said that he was, and he said, I'm going to make a toast to our new queen, our young queen here. And I'm going to use the same words that I toasted Queen Victoria in 1870. So he had actually given, he had toasted Queen Victoria. And so this guy who had been fighting with on a, on a cavalry charge with a sword at the Battle of Omdurman toasts the queen and the queen lives long enough to make Elizabeth Truss, who was not alive when the Queen acceded to the throne, born in the 70s, 15th Prime Minister. And that just gives you a real sense of the scale of time. That there was a living connection with the Victorian age, not the beginning of the Elizabethan age, but the Victorian age. So that was one thing. But the, sorry, the other thing about was that he knows Charles very well. Prince, King Charles, I keep saying Prince Charles, King Charles was best man at his first wedding and so on. And he says, I can absolutely assure you that Charles thinks an awful lot about his new constitutional duty and he will never cross any of those lines. You will not hear him talking in public about his interest in environmental depredation or architecture or any of those kind of things. He understood absolutely that now he's king, all of that absolutely stops. Now, I think that's very important because if it carried on, if we got more of those black spider letters or the new king summoning ministers to lecture them on his views on organic farming, whatever it might be, that I think would be lethal to the monarchy, really dangerous. What Soames was getting is that he gets it, the new king gets it, and he will be very reticent, and he will follow his mother's example, rather perhaps than his own instincts. That's so interesting, isn't it, Rachel? Because we've been through this period recently of instability, of crises, constitutional crises as well, and with the breakup of the union now, not impossible. And with a monarch like Charles, can we expect him to treat these kind of issues in the same way that the Queen has, where you know that she is advising behind the scenes and occasionally you get front pages that suggest that politicians are embarrassing the Queen and then everyone gasps and takes a pause and hopefully we try and use our strange constitution to muddle through it. Do you think that kind of thing will be as possible with King Charles? It's a really interesting question to just go back to what Megan was saying about the reaction from across the world, including from the other countries where she is their monarch as well, which she was their monarch, I should say. You have to think, if you were designing a constitutional political system in 2022, you probably wouldn't come up with an elected prime minister and a constitutional monarch with a, a, an aristocratic family with lots of palaces. You, that's not the model that you would, if you would come up with if you were starting from scratch. And yet, what is sometimes quite difficult to explain, say, to Americans, for example, or people who come from different political systems, is that, strangely, in the UK, it 
seems to really work. And the separation of head of government and head of state is not unique to monarchy at all. Other countries have an elected head of state. And strangely, ours works. Having that continuity figure, not having that role being elected, gives you that sense of stability, that sense that even in the midst of political turmoil, and there has been an awful lot of political turmoil recently, there are some things that are certain and that we can rely on. Now, it worked partly because, as Angie was saying, she lived and she reigned for so long. And obviously that was quite unusual to ascend to the throne in your 20s, have a 70-year reign. Part of that is is timing. But another part of that, the reason why it worked was because she took that role of unelected chosen by God, perhaps, but not chosen by the people, well, very seriously, and was so careful that her influence was about continuity and stability, not about making her own opinions felt or interfering in politics. And there are a few instances, perhaps, over the course of that 70-year reign where perhaps the line was very slightly blurred and she seems to have realised, or those around her realised very quickly, that they were on very dangerous ground. Now, Charles is obviously in a much harder position because he has he's an adult in his 70s and he has made statements and he has had opinions as is his right. You can't go, as, as Andrew said, for, for your entire life, never saying anything in public. But I think in order for the monarchy to work in the UK, let alone anywhere else, there has to be this understanding that it is a role completely separate from politics and the value in it is in that symbolic nature rather than having that kind of impact in what's going on. And without that, if that starts to even look in doubt for a moment, I think the whole thing will fall apart very quickly. And I'm reassured by Andrew's comments on saying that he gets that because I do think that's very important. Very important, yes. I don't think it's so much the case that constitutional monarchy works for Britain, rather that the version of female constitutional monarchy pursued by this particular queen has worked for Britain. I don't think we can draw big lessons about what's going beyond that it has worked with this particular woman doing the job in this particular very restrained way. I think we can draw no lessons for the future. It wasn't just the restraint. However, this she's a very devout Christian and at periods in our history where perhaps our public life, our government has seemed a bit harsh, then by and large, the royal family have leaned, I wouldn't say leftwards, but in a more kind of pro-charitable, pro-people at the bottom of the heap, pro-people just getting on and helping one another direction away from the world of money and celebrity, rich though they are beyond belief. And I think therefore the way that she has done it has worked for us over the past number of decades, that doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. And you've described yourself as a queenist rather than a constitutional monarchist, I think, on that exactly. note. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, you wanted to come in. I just wanted to add to that and jump on something also that, that Rachel had said, is that the Queen's version of constitutional monarchy has also worked for much of the Commonwealth and the other countries, international countries, who have her as head of state. And Andrew, you made the point that, you know, the Queen had made of her life's mission, basically, to suppress her, who she was in, in service of her role. So really, the world doesn't know who the Queen is as an individual, but the world feels they do know who 
Prince, now King Charles is, because of the era that we live in with tabloids and social media and celebrity interviews and Oprah. So the rest of the world feels that they have an idea of who the rest of the royal family is. And it, I think it will be a real challenge, and I think the existential challenge now, to, for King Charles to, not just within the UK, but on the world stage, to show that he is the king, he is the head of the monarchy, he is no longer an individual. It's going to be tough. Yes. And what I wanted to ask you, Megan, was that I know that the New Statesman International Desk has been discussing about how this could possibly be seen around the world as the end or a significant turning point in Britain's imperial age. And that's something that you've been talking about with your team. Could you say a bit about what you're planning to cover in terms of that theme? Yeah, our writer at large, Jeremy Cliff, has just filed a piece that will be up shortly on Elizabeth as the last living link with an old imperial Britain. And he makes a really good point is that even as she became the monarch, that era was already on the way out. And her long reign of 70 years has seen the place that the UK has taken on the world stage shrink. There's, you know, for better or worse, that that is the reality. And we look at it's not just it's not just scandals or I mean Windrush scandal elements of that the darker side of the empire. It's also just the way politically Britain has been seen on the world stage. We look at Brexit. We look at the role the military plays. It just the Britain of today of the end of her reign is just a starkly different place than it was when she became queen. Mm. And it's just, when we talk about the sense of history of this moment, it's just, it's really hard to, I think, wrap your mind around the changes that she has seen and that the UK has seen. Yeah. And just lastly, I hope this isn't a self-indulgent question, Andrew, but having been at the BBC for so long, you must have been drilled in all of this and it must feel strange that the day has actually yeah. come. Um, it certainly has. People have been waiting for it and preparing for it. And as I think Rachel said, it's hardly a surprise. She was 96. These things happen. And yet I think it took everyone by surprise when it actually did happen. There was a very strange moment, uh, Anush, I know, uh, was witnessing at the time, when we were all watching this really important announcement of the massive, eye-wateringly big package of support from the new government, the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, to get British families and businesses limping through this winter with unpayable energy bills. And it's a really important political. And it was a very interesting clash of ideas in the House of Commons that we were all gripped by. And then suddenly in the middle of it, Nadim Zahawi, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, sitting on the government front bench, got a bit of paper and started to pass it around. There's a little bit of a flurry. And then the paper was passed to the opposition front bench. Keir Starmer was in the middle of explaining philosophically why the government was wrong. And his deputy, Angela Rayner, who's very much to his left, was sitting just behind him, got this bit of paper and her face just fell. We have this expression, ashen faced. And for the first time, I began to understand what it might mean. And then she passed the paper to the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, who was sitting next to her and her face fell. 
and suddenly within a few seconds, nobody in the chamber seemed to be listening to what this very important, one of the most important announcements we've yeah. had for years in the House of Commons, and everybody was ignoring it. And this kind of ripple went round, ripple of unease went round, MPs started to leave. And we were sitting around saying, could it be the Queen? Is it a terrorist attack? Has another politician died suddenly? What's gone on? But it was absolutely clear. That was the first moment that we realised and everything since then in Britain has been different. The schools are going to carry on. Flags are going to be flying at half-mast, as Rachel was saying. Businesses, most businesses will carry on. Our television's going to be different for quite a while and every aspect of our life. But that's how it started. And one final interesting fact, Liz Truss got the news formally at 4.30 in Downing Street. In other words, an hour and a half before it was announced. So whatever happened, the Queen's death clearly happened earlier than we realised. And I wonder whether some of those very carefully modulated palace announcements about she's under medical supervision, she's comfortable, were the palace's way of saying, folks, it's just happening, it's happening right now. Mm. It was quite a day. Yeah, so that's how it felt, isn't it? I will let you all get on with your days because it's a very busy news day, of course. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Andrew Marr, Megan Gibson and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.